optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're the same time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably athletic greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and gents, magwai and gremlins. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job each and every episode to tease out the habits, routines, favorite books, etc., of world-class performers from a wide, wide spectrum of fields. Sometimes they come from sports, other times military, chess, business, you name it. In this case, we have a serial entrepreneur, Bob Metcalf, at Bob Metcalf on Twitter. That's Bob, M-E-T-C-A-L-F-E. Bob is an MIT Harvard-trained engineer and entrepreneur who became an internet pioneer in 1970, invented Ethernet in 1973, and founded 3Com Corporation in 1979. Roughly 1.2 billion Ethernet ports were shipped last year. 400 million wired and 800 million wireless Wi-Fi. 3Com went public in 1984. P 
peaked at 5.7 billion in annual sales in 1999, and after 30 years became part of HP, and that was last year. Bob was a publisher pundit for IDG InfoWorld for about 10 years and a venture capitalist for approximately 10 years with Polaris Venture Partners, where he continues as a venture partner. Bob is a member of the National Academy of Engineering and a recipient of the National Medal of Technology. We talk about just about everything from how he cheers, in other words, when he does a salutation when people are drinking wine or whiskey or whatever it might be. We talk about the early days. We talk about how he learned to hire and fire, the right things, the wrong things to do, scaling businesses, uh, different types of approaches to evaluating talent, the critical decisions he made, the mistakes in some cases that he has made, how he's gotten himself out of very dark periods. And from... Start to finish, a uh, really fascinating journey of a conversation that I tremendously enjoyed. So I'll leave it at that. Without further ado, pl- <laughs> without further ado, that's I think how you say it. Without further ado, what the hell am I trying to say here? <laughs> without further ado, there we go. I was trying to make it French. Without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Bob Metcalf. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am really thrilled to connect and so happy to have you here, especially given that I suppose I'm now technically, I don't know if I should call myself an Austinite, but I live in Austin. Well, nice of you to move here. It makes this interview so much more convenient. <laughs> it does make it more convenient. Is Austinite one of those self-descriptions that you have to wait a certain period of time to earn? Or as soon as someone lives here, can they call themselves that? I think back to Long Island. We both have some history with Long Island. And where I grew up on eastern Long Island, if you were to call yourself a boniker, that has a very specific association with families that have been around for a long time. Does Austinite have that or not so much? You know, I don't know about it. I, I consider myself an Austinite because I live in Austin, but maybe I'm being presumptious there. I don't You've know. been here how long now? Seven Austin? years and a month. Seven years and a month. And I say that makes me a native, but then they look at you. And they <laughs> I actually prefer to think of myself as a Texan it's rather a Texan. than an Austinite. Mm-hmm. I technically, I don't live in the city of Austin, even though that's my mailing address. I overlook the city of Austin. So we're, I think we'll come back to Austin, given uh, your, your teaching. But what I thought we might start with is, uh, for many people, something they probably don't associate you with, and that is tennis. So I actually, for the first time in my life, had proper tennis instruction last summer. I really wanted to, I've always wanted to learn tennis, but I associated that growing up as a townie on Long Island with the city people. That just wasn't something that the townies did. And I secretly pined after learning how to play tennis. And it seems like the sport has had an impact on your life. And if I understand correctly, you've learned so much from the game that you considered writing a book about it. Is that just an internet misquote? Or, well, I didn't uh, write the book, but, but you, you considered thought about it. it. You yeah, thought about because it. Because I've learned so much and I think about tennis. I don't play much of it anymore. Mm-hmm. I intend to get back, but I have to lose 50 pounds. Mm-hmm. My, my playing weight was 50 pounds lighter than this. and mm-hmm. So I've been out there. I almost uh, hurt myself uh, last time I went out. I One of my specialties in tennis is chasing the ball down on a clay court. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got up a head of steam on one of these balls that got over my head and 
ran it down and returned it, and then realized I was running at the fence at full speed, <laughs> carrying an extra 50 pounds, uh -oh. and going, bam, right into it. So I think I'm going to go back to tennis after losing some weight. Well, I can, I, I, I'm, I'll extend the offer to help if you like, uh, just having spent so much time in that world. But tennis, why does tennis appeal to you, or what have you learned or observed in the game of tennis that can apply elsewhere? Lots of things, but the first word that comes to mind is how to compete, compete, competition. Mm -hmm. And uh, what it takes to win. I like to win, and I've become more. I became more competitive. We, I played competitive in tournament tennis. This was a long time ago. Before uh, I never turned professional. In fact, I preserved my amateur status. I twice I won a hundred dollar prize, and I turned it down ah, to preserve to preserve my amateur status, and which I effectively did it. <laughs> Another way to preserve your amateur status is to lose. <laughs> <laughs> So I got to the finals of the New England B Championship and lost in the finals. And I got to the, uh, got, uh, 1972 was ranked sixth in New England with my doubles partner in doubles. Hmm. And we uh, secured that position by losing in the semifinals of the New England Hardcourt <laughs> Championship. So that's an effective way of staying out here. <laughs> what makes a good competitor? In, in tennis or otherwise, it could be specific to tennis, uh, but when you say you learn to compete, what does the before and after look like once someone well, has learned to compete? Lots of differences, but the one I hang on is that some people, when they miss a shot, they'll throw their racket or smash it on the ground and stomp around, and, and that positions them to do even worse on the next point. So one of the things I focused on was if I make a mistake, I don't throw my racket, I don't smash it, I don't get upset, I, I try to correct and improve. And I think that makes a big difference. And, uh, I, my doubles partner actually would take his racket and sm smash it on the tennis post. Now in those days you'd carry two or three rackets, so he would smash it. And they were wooden rackets, by the way, so when you smashed it, it was quite dramatic. But I never smashed a racket because I tried to channel my energy and that made me a more effective competitor. Did you, how old were you at the time at your peak of competition, roughly? My peak would be 1972. Let's see. Uh, yeah. uh, that's arithmetic now. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, we're talking at end of high school? No, no, that's the end of college. End of college. Four years after my PhD. My PhD I got the same year. So it was, uh, I got it. Yeah, so I was 20-something. Were you developing at that time the ability to compete or not be emotionally reactive in other areas of your life or was it mostly siloed to tennis? I, I guess what I wonder is, uh, did you enjoy competing in other aspects of your life simultaneously? No, that came later. I think my competition was channeled in tennis. I played a lot of tennis. You know, every weekend at a tournament, practice during the week, I played varsity tennis at MIT. Mm -hmm. I was captain of the MIT tennis team. Mm -hmm. Uh, so played a lot there, three or four hours a day, and the um, and I loved to win, and I beat a lot of everybody I ever beat. Always told me they were having a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> Could be true. I mean, it's plausible. Well, I played but... <laughs> public court tennis. I, I learned. Uh, I played tennis at Bayshore School System on asphalt, and when I say asphalt, I don't mean hard courts. I mean like the kind they make roads out of. Right. And our courts were asphalt. And uh, my coach uh, used to say, Van Ostrin was his name, you only have to win the last point. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so the goal is to get the ball back one more time than anybody else. And so I tended to outlast people on the points. Did you get the competitive drive? Did, was that derived organically just through your life experiences? Or was that learned from parents or other influences? I wouldn't say my parents were very competitive. So I think I may have picked it up playing tennis. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to jump around quite a bit because that's just the nature of, of, of how I tend to talk to my friends. And I know we're just getting to know each other, but my conversations tend to be somewhat memento-like in reference to the movie that is extremely hard to follow. Uh, so you mean we're leaving tennis already? It means, well, we don't have to. We don't have to leave tennis. Is there anything you'd like to add related to tennis? Well, my specialty was doubles. Mm-hmm. And I love to play with a partner and have teamwork and have specialties. And, and that was another way of winning because if you, you can optimize the two players, one's good at hitting hard, one's good at chasing the ball down, one's good at the second serve, and you just play the strengths of the two players. I liked, that was a part I really liked the best. So, mm-hmm. so, so that sixth ranking in New England in 1972 was my highest ranking ever. Mm-hmm. And it was achieved with uh, Brookfield. Skip Brookfield, who knocked the hell out of the ball, but it usually didn't. It usually went out. <laughs> See, in tennis, you learn to hit the ball harder and harder and harder, but it's more important for it to be in. Right. And uh, Skip never had that, but he could knock the hell out of the ball. So, so, how much time did you spend developing your strengths versus fixing your weaknesses, or how did you think about uh, how to allocate your time and energy to those two things? If you did. Well, one of the things I learned in tennis is the value of getting a coach. So I would, um, and I was blessed with coaches in both high school and college who uh, knew how to teach. It's different, you know, you can win a tennis, but you can also teach tennis, and those are not the same thing. And I had great coaches, but they would point out weaknesses. So I guess my answer to your question is I focused on fixing things that were wrong with my game to bring the whole thing up to a acceptable level because your opponent will find your weakness and play it so you have to be sure not to have too many of those i suspect we'll probably come back to this just thematically we're going to come back to a lot of these points probably in the realm of business maybe elsewhere uh but i would love to hop ahead i think i'm getting the date right may 22nd 1973 that's an important date it's an important date could you explain why that's an important date for people On May 22nd, 1973, I was sitting in my office at Xerox Palo Alto Research Center in Palo Alto, California, and uh, I had been given the job of, for the first time in the history of the world, networking a building full of personal computers, because there weren't any personal computers in 1973 to speak of, and I was lucky enough to get that job. And so leading up to that May 22nd day, you know, some ideation and travel and so on. But on that day, I sat down at my IBM Selectric typewriter and typed the memo outlining how Ethernet would work. So that's the Ethernet memo. And did you refer to it at that time as Ethernet? That was the memo in which Ethernet was named. How did you choose that name? Well, in building the network, we uh, chose to use a a thick, a half-inch thick coaxial cable to carry, uh, shared among all the attached PCs to carry the packets back and forth among the PCs. But we chose the coax for very particular reasons, and we anticipated maybe if we did it again, we would choose a different medium, twisted pair or optical fibers or radio, for example. 
So we didn't call it coax net. We called it a generic thing, and there was this word ether floating around. Um, you know, the ether was once thought to carry light from the sun to the earth, the luminiferous ether. Luminiferous. Light-bearing. And then around 1900, the, it was shown there was no ether. The, the light got here without a medium. So the, the word ether fell into disuse, and it was there for us. So omnipresent, it, this cable would go everywhere, completely passive. It wasn't powered. It just sat there, and it was a medium for the propagation of electromagnetic waves, our data packets. So hence, Ethernet. Mm -hmm. That's how it happened. So for, for people who are not familiar... Uh, what, what did Ethernet represent in terms of of change and innovation? What was what was the significance, in in your words or the words of others, of Ethernet? So Ethernet is the plumbing of the internet. Its job is to carry packets around physically around the world on these interconnected Ethernets. So it's the, think of it as the plumbing. And what you generally think of is all the guys above it who have all the fun. You right. know, Google and Facebook and all those people. They're up there. But everything they do eventually becomes launching packets around the network. So we're the plumbing. Mm -hmm. I had in my office at Xerox the most modern computer terminal in the world, a Texas Instruments Silent 700. And it could type characters on a piece of paper at 30 characters per second and those characters arrived over a thick cable that carried the bits at 300 bits per second. Remember that number, 300. When, we, uh, when Dave Boggs and I built the first Ethernet, it ran at 2.94 megabits per second, roughly 10,000 times faster. So in one day, we went from 300 bits per second to roughly 3 megabits per second. So... That is the principal change. So we began to think of bandwidth, uh, not scarcity, not as a scarce commodity, but in abundance, because we had 10,000 times more than we'd had before. Your interest, when did your interest in networks develop? I don't know if ARPANET came in early in that interest in networking or later, but uh, how did you become interested in uh, what would ultimately become Ethernet. Uh, I mean, what were the, the seeds that led you down that path? Well, I had, uh, at MIT, between 64 and 69, was a computer science student, but there was no computer science then, so I was an electrical engineer and a management student at the same time. And then I went to grad school, and I made a mistake, and I went to Harvard Grad School, which was terrible. I lasted a week before I was back working at MIT again. Hold on, I, but why was why was that? Because I'm an engineer, and Harvard doesn't like engineers. Uh, I see. Okay. To this day, right. so, <laughs> got it. Um, by the way, you would think that by now, fifty years later, I would have lost this bitterness <laughs> toward Harvard, but I haven't. It's still here, uh, and that's a long story, uh, which you could ask me about later because it has some fun parts. I will ask you later. Yeah, the the roots of my animosity toward Harvard University. <laughs> But the, uh, <laughs> uh, where was I going with that? Uh, I was uh, asking you about the seeds. Oh, yes. Yeah. So when you're a grad student, so I showed up at Harvard in uh, the fall of 69, 
uh, and I needed to find an advisor and a topic to get my PhD two or three or four or five years, 10, 15 years later. And, uh, and the big, hot computer science research project was ARPANET. Mm-hmm. It had just been started. And so being opportunistic, I said, okay, I'm going to do something. So that's how I ended up in networking was just because that's what grad students do. They, they do whatever's funded, and ARPANET was funded. Could you explain for folks what, what ARPANET is or was? Well, ARPANET is the Internet, only it's an early version of the Internet. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of debate about that. The uh, Advanced Research Projects Agency of the Department of Defense... Uh, used to buy computers for each of its research universities so they could do their computer research. And they got tired of buying one for every campus, so they said, we should do resource sharing. And what that meant was from any campus, you'd be able to use all the other computers at other ARPA sites. So the first app was called resource sharing, and it meant being able to log in from a terminal in one university and run programs and uh, process your data at another university. And that killer, that app was not the killer app. It turned out within a year, email became the killer app. But it started out as resource sharing. Mm -hmm. So as a grad student, see, I proposed, I had just finished learning digital electronics at MIT as an electrical engineer. So I'm up at Harvard, and I could see that Harvard needed to connect its its, uh, computer to this packet switch ARPA dropped off a packet switch at each of its major universities and connected them with high-speed modems. And then you had to connect your computer to the packet switch. So fresh from MIT Digital School, I volunteered at at Harvard to build the hardware to connect Harvard's computer to the packet switch. And Harvard, this is the beginning of my answer, Harvard (laughs) said, no, that's too important work to leave to a graduate student. Ooh, singer. So I turned around, went down the street to MIT, and they gave me a job doing exactly the same thing. So they paid me. By the way, I was paid more than my Harvard advisor, which is a whole other story. <laughs> and that annoyed him. I can imagine. But So I built uh, this device uh, to connect an imp, that's the packet switch of the internet, to the local computer at MIT, a PDB-10. And I built it. And MIT, I asked MIT, and they said, you can build another one and give it to Harvard if you want. And Harvard wouldn't accept it because it was too important for a graduate student. So I, I, I built that hardware. Now, that hardware could be described as um, carrying bits one at a time down a long wire, which is my essential skill. And I had actually practiced some of that at MIT prior, not for networking, but building digital electronics. So I sort of developed a specialty in sending bits one at a time down a long wire. And this device did that. And then I, when I went to Xerox right after my PhD, I, I went to Xerox Research, and the first thing I did there was build another one of these devices to connect the Xerox computers into the Internet. And then it was in that moment that we started uh, developing what are called personal computers. There's so many different, different avenues we could go down here. Uh, but uh, I'd like to help people with a definition because I, I do find the plumbing uh, of what we now think of as the Internet and the web fascinating. And it's, it's helpful to understand some of the terms. So you've mentioned packet a few times. Can you explain to people what a packet is in the context that you're using it? Okay, so you've got to start with bits. 
ones and zeros, and all computing is done, roughly speaking, with ones and zeros. No, not all computing is done with ones and zeros. And the uh, and then you take those ones and zeros and you put them into groups. Which you could call those bytes, or you could call them fields if they're bigger. So you string a bunch of fields of bits together. And then if you put on the front of it a field which is the address of a place, so you'd like this these bits to go, then you have the makings of a packet. So a packet is a bunch of bits with an address in the front, and you give that to a packet switch and it sends it off toward this destination. So a packet is a bunch of bits heading in a certain direction with an address on them. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, By the way, there's usually two addresses, mm -hmm. a destination address and a source address. But actually, there's four addresses because there's the destination and the source in the local environment, and then there's the ultimate destination and source. So that's an internet protocol address as opposed to an ethernet address. So the internet the, protocol's IP of the TCP IP? That's right, TCP IP, transmission control protocol, internet protocol, TCP IP, and the IP is our internet packets, and they have four addresses. They have the, the ethernet address, which says where to go locally, like right over there, in order to get closer and closer and closer to the big address, which is the ultimate destination of the packet. Thank you. When does Metcalfe's law enter the picture? Uh, or what has become... You like of, to jump around, don't you? I do. I yeah. do like to jump around. <clears throat> but we can go wherever you like. If there's well, a more let's, natural let's do Metcalfe's law for a while. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it... Uh, in 1979, I founded a company called 3Com to deliver the fundamental, deliver the plumbing, to build out the plumbing of the internet, which was just now spreading. What Ethernet did was allow the internet to go into a building and visit all the desks. Prior to that, internet just came to the building and stopped in the computer room. This allowed it to go. And it led, so most machines are on Ethernet, they're not on the internet directly. So the, so my company started selling Ethernet cards about this big, and they would plug into your PC and they'll allow a cable to come to your PC and put it on the Ethernet, which then put it on the Internet. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, one of the problems my company had in 1981 where there were no personal computers. Uh, it was hard to sell. <laughs> and we were running out of money. We had venture capital. And, and the, uh, so we made up this idea of a... Um, a trial, a kit, three-node network for $3,000. You get three cards. You can plug them into your three IBM PCs, which were just beginning then. And then, we, uh, and then you'd hook them together with a cable. And then we had a diskette full of software. And the software allowed you to share a printer. So you'd connect a printer to one of the three PCs, and then the other two PCs could share it. Or you could put a disk on one of the PCs, and then the other two PCs could share it. And then there was software that allowed you to send an email from any one of the three PCs to any one of the other two. And this kit was a $3,000 kit, and my company sold it, and people bought it because it was novel and interesting. And it worked. That is, people found, we're, we're heading toward Metcalfe's Law. It's, I'm in no rush. It's we coming have, up. We have as much time as we need. So people bought this trial kit, and they put their three PCs together, and it shared the printer and shared the disk and exchanged the emails. Of course, how useful is email among three nodes? Right? <laughs> and they told us that the product did what it said, 
but it was not useful. So I then went in a trance. I was head of sales and marketing of the company at that time. By then, I ran over to Stanford. We Xerox had donated some early PCs called Altos. We had donated them to Stanford. And I went over there, and I had access to the computer room there, and I made up a slide. And the slide basically said that the cost of your network goes up linearly. As you, as you buy one of my cards, the network gets bigger and bigger, and the cost goes up linearly, say, $1,000 a card. It was like that. But the number of possible connections went up as n squared. That is, each node could talk to the other n, the other end. And when you added another node, it could also talk to the other end, which could also talk to it. And if you do the math, the number of possible connections goes up roughly as n squared. So I made this slide showing the linear and then showing the quadratic passing the linear, as it always does, overtakes it at some point. And I call that the critical mass point. And I said, oh, and then I drew this out, took a picture with a camera, because we didn't have PowerPoint. So I took a picture with the camera, developed it into 35-millimeter slides, and handed six slides out to my sales force, which had six people in it. And we made the following argument. Uh, the reason your network is not useful is that it's too small. <laughs> and what's the remedy to that? <laughs> more Buy cards. more of our product. <laughs> and they did. And it proved true that your networks turned useful. Mm -hmm. And we went public in um, March of 1984. Now, it's been asked many times, especially by engineers who are suspicious of sales and marketing people, whether that slide was a lie. Was I lying by saying if you made the network bigger, it would be more useful? And the answer is no, I was not lying. And I'm fond of saying it's because I had a time machine. The Xerox Research Center was a time machine. And I took it out 10 years into the future filled Xerox with PCs and LANs and laser printers and internet routing boxes, and it was good, and everyone could see that it was good. So when I wrote that slide that night, I was not lying. I was predicting, based on 10 years of experience, what would happen, and it proved true, and my company went successfully public. Ten years later, that slide, which said that the value of a network grows as the square of the number of connections or users um, by a man named George Gilder. He called it Metcalfe's Law. So since 1995, I've been enjoying and defending Metcalfe's Law. I have several follow-up questions. The first is, why did you name the company 3Com? Oh, that's easy. In uh, 1979, on June 4th, when the company was founded, um, what I wanted to accomplish with this company was to connect computers together. And what we had discovered in building the ARPANET is that every vendor of computers had their own com programming languages and operating systems and computer protocols for communication. So the purpose of, of my company was to provide computer communication compatibility. Com, com, com. Three com. Three com. Yeah. So that's where I got the name. And uh, you mentioned in passing uh, the general aversion, to put it lightly, that engineers have with respect to sales and marketing. Uh, how did you decide to start a company? 
were you already entrepreneurial and had tried various things? Uh, what was the impetus behind starting the company? And not to say that being entrepreneurial is automatically uh, sales and marketing, but it's certainly a component, generally speaking. H- how did you decide to pursue or create 3 Comp? So my parents were not entrepreneurial. They never went to college. They Actually, my father did start a company once. It was called BAM Electronics. Bailey, Abrahamson, and Metcalf Electronics, and it lasted a year, and its purpose was to fix TVs. TVs were new then, mm-hmm. and they would break, and the way you fix them is to replace tubes. So he had a company to replace tubes, but eventually Metcalf believed that he was the hardest working of the three, and Bailey thought he was the hardest working of the three, and Abramson thought he was the... So the company blew apart in a year. But that's as close as my family got to entrepreneurship. But then I went to MIT, And when I arrived there in 64, MIT was at the heart of what would later be called Silicon Valley on the East Coast. So Mm -hmm. Route 128 was. So suddenly I'm surrounded by entrepreneurs and role models. And so I guess that was the beginning of it. And I was involved in starting three companies at MIT as an undergraduate uh, and then a little bit in grad school. But then I moved from 128 to Palo Alto, which was beginning to be Silicon Valley, with some, so you could you could say I moved Silicon Valley from, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or I was doing it the same year anyway. Uh, and there, I suddenly surrounded. You know, I met Steve Jobs, I met Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard and Bob Noyce and you know, all of them. And there is one impression that you walk away with when you meet those people, when you meet people like that. And the impression is, if this person can start a company. <laughs> Than I can. <laughs> well, those are well some, they become human. I mean, yeah, when you become human, you, you, can, you can see the limitation. They're human beings, and you can, if they can do it, you can do it. And the question is how to how to figure it out. How did you end up the head of sales and marketing? And and how did you get good at sales and marketing, or how do you think about it? I know those are a lot of questions wrapped into one. Well, the uh, I was an engineer and uh, at Xerox, and they had a uh, charm school. That is, this company was so big, they had their own university in Virginia, and you could go there if you want as part of your development. You said charm school, right? We called it charm school. (laughs) (laughs) And I went and I took a course called Xerox Selling Skills. Hmm. And by the way, there were 35 people in the class, and 34 of them were blonde women. Why did you decide to take the course? Uh, there weren't that many choices. <laughs> Aside from 34 blonde women. <laughs> that wasn't a fact. It wasn't until okay. I arrived that okay. I realized I had hit pay dirt there. Uh, there was another course called Managing Tasks Through People. I took that one too. But then time passed. I started my company. I was chairman, CEO, president. And uh, we this raised 3Com, 3Com Corporation in 1979, in 1980. We were initially consulting for revenue, and then we started selling a book that we developed. Uh, then we get, we're getting ready to have products, and we raised venture capital. And one of the things that you do is a, then you recruit adult supervision. Mm-hmm. Term of art, adult still supervision. happens quite a bit now. Yeah. Well, it's important, or it's foisted upon you, <laughs> depending on how the board is composed. Yeah. Um, well, you're lucky if they foisted it on Yeah, you. no, no. I'm not saying I have no Anyway, um, 
I didn't learn this from Steve Jobs, but I later saw that Steve knew this, which is you need adult supervision. A lot of people think Steve was the CEO of Apple. Well, he wasn't the CEO of Apple to 1996. He founded the company in 1976, so it took him 20 years to make CEO. Well, I was the CEO, but I, I saw that I needed adult supervision, so we recruited Bill Krause from HP, and uh, that was a good decision. Bill joined the company when there were 12 of us, and we kicked him upstairs to chairman when there were 12,000 of us, wow. so he did good. Yeah, that's so a hell of a run. He's good. But, um, but when he arrived... Uh, he, he then became the CEO, and we were running out of. We were starting to spend that venture capital, and uh, the board of directors asked. I was kind of annoyed. Uh, I recruited Bill, but I didn't recruit him to be CEO. But then it became obvious to the board that he should be CEO, and and the the board then said, "We Bob, we want you to be head of sales and marketing." That's how I got the job, and there was. I was a VP of sales and marketing. I was also the only member of that function. There were no salesmen. There were no marketing. It was just me. So I started learning really quickly. And, and, and did you have the, the skills, the toolkit to do that job partially because of the class that you took at Charm School? Did it help? or was That, that helped enormously. But it was, keep in mind, our revenue was zero. So the kind of selling that was required was personal selling. Mm-hmm. And having invented the technology, I was in a good position to do personal selling because I could get an appointment with anybody. Right. So I invented this. I'd like to come talk to you about it. And so I could get appointments that a normal salesperson couldn't get. And I took us from zero to a million a month in revenue. But then... Just, just you alone? No. With, I recruited... Uh, recruited uh, one, two... Eventually, it was six regional managers, but initially three. Uh, and you'll be surprised how many more orders you get when you actually go out and ask for them. <laughs> <laughs> and so revenue started upward from zero. But when it hit around a million, and this touches on one of my favorite metaphors, I redlined, mm. and we needed to shift gears because selling is very complicated. So... Um, you know, sales competition, territory management, channels of distribution, contracts. It's, it's complicated. So Mike Caliberco was recruited to be from HP to be our new head of sales and marketing. And he took us from a million a month to five million a month. And then he redlined. So he succeeded and then redlined. And then we replaced him with uh, Chuck Kempton. And Chuck took us from, five, I'm losing track of the numbers here, but $5 million to $25 million a month. And then he redlined. And then we got Bob Finocchio to take over there, and he took us into the billions. Wow. So what we were doing was shifting gears. And you have to do a lot of that when you're growing a startup. You have to be sure the, see, the company's growing more rapidly than the people. You have to pay attention to which people have been left behind by your accelerating company. And then you need to, in some cases, shift gears. Does that relate to operating ranges? Yes. Could you explain what that refers to, what operating ranges refer to? Well, people have, if you look at s- different sizes of companies, uh, people have skills related to size, scale. So, for example, my specialty is when chaos reigns and the company doesn't quite exist yet, and w- that seemed to be where I performed the best. But then there's people like John Scully, a buddy of mine who knows how to run a multi-billion dollar company. We, 
we do not know the same stuff. We have a different temperament. So our, his operating range is up in the billions per year, and my operating range is zero to a million or zero a month. That's what I mean by operating ranges. So the some of it is the details of the... Well, so for example, when you're running a multi-billion dollar company, you have different divisions for different products. You have different channels of distribution, and there's many layers of management, and you have different skills. Like when you're an engineer, you build things. When you're an engineering manager, you manage people who build things, which is different from building them. And then when you're a manager of managers of engineers, that's, that's a, even that's a different task. So, and so different people, uh, some people have very broad operating ranges and some people have very narrow ones. And what, what did you find to be the most effective approach for informing someone that they needed to be replaced. So you have these various players with different operating ranges, and you mentioned four or five names at different stages needed to be replaced with someone else. What what did you find to be the best or most effective way to make those transitions? Well, what we're talking about is management. So it's up to management to make the very subtle decisions about if you have a salesperson who's underperforming in a region is it because the salesperson isn't right, or did did you set their quota too high, or is that market not really as big as you thought? And that and that's thinking that through and deciding is called management. Then eventually, sometimes you reach that it really that person really needs to be replaced. Uh, so one thing I learned about that is never fire anybody alone. Never fire anyone alone. No, you should bring help. So you usually bring the head of human resources to help you. Because funny things happen when you let people go. They, they. Um... By the way, in all these cases, we offered the person the option to take another job at the company, hmm. but that didn't work. Uh, I remember Chuck stormed out the door. He wasn't going to put up with that because he disagreed mm-hmm. with our management assessment that that he was the problem. Right. And we offered him a regional thing. I forget what it was, but uh, he, he wasn't having it, and he stormed <laughs> out. Uh, in the case of Mike Halliburka, when we replaced him as national sales manager, he took over the Western region and prospered. Hmm. So you have different outcomes, but you should never do it alone. So you never fire alone. And is that just for moral support, or how, how does that how does that help? And then uh, what? Well, it keeps some people get very upset when you fire them. Right. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure I would. If, I've been fired. I wasn't too happy about it. <laughs> I'm smarter than you. I always quit just before they're going to fire me. <laughs> yeah, That's should. not smart from a compensation point of view, by the way. It's much yeah. better to be fired than to quit. Right, you get, you get your severance. You and get your so severance on. package, right? <laughs> no, it's just better to have um, more than two people in the room to keep things calm. And It's not personal. It's business. And, and here's some alternatives. And So don't do it alone. That's... And the other thing I learned is about halfway through the um, interview, you both realize it's the right thing. Mm. And you don't want to do a job that you're not doing well. You want to go find one that you can do well. And, and um, So this is getting that message, and then you make the adjustment. Some do and some don't. Some get very upset. I remember Marlene, um, uh, we needed salespeople, and she was our marketing person. And so I took her for a walk. We used to do this around the parking lot. See, the building had a parking lot around it, and 
So this is before I learned about don't do it alone. Yeah. So she and I went on this long walk around the building. We probably did it 10 times. And I, I explained to her that I needed her to be a salesperson and to cover the Northern California region. And we didn't need the marketing she was doing. But she saw herself as a marketing person. So she argued with me 10 times around the building and eventually quit. I mean, that day she quit she wasn't going to take the sales job. And she went off and started another company and made millions of dollars. And so uh, that would be evidence that she needed a different kind of job. And she found it and everything went well. Um, anyway, you don't want to fire people. It's no fun. No, and I was going to, we came to this uh, a little earlier than I anticipated because of the operating ranges. And I have questions about hiring coming up right after this. Um, but are there any particular opening lines or any language that you found very helpful in having those difficult meetings? Because I've worked with many startups and I've, I've largely stepped out of that type of work um, as of about two years ago. But every founder or CEO certainly has at some point sooner or later will will have a conversation like this or need to have or should have a conversation like this uh, should and will yeah should and will so is there any language or any guidelines that you've given founders uh for for making that uh for becoming better at that or or uh not screwing it up terribly when you have those meetings I think I will annoy a bunch of human resource executives with my answer to that. That's okay. Well, one of them is not to give too many reasons. Mm. In fact, zero reasons is the best, which is we've concluded that you're no longer working out in this position and we'd like you to take that position or leave the company, whichever. When you start to give reasons, then you begin a debate and yep. it's never ending. And, and, uh, as venture capitalists, this was a rule of mine, which is to avoid giving reasons. Because as soon as you give a reason, you have a pen pal and you're in a discussion forever. So the thrust of it is the general management decision. It's not personal that this that you're, this job and you are not meant for each other, so you're not performing well in it. We want to get you to a job that you'll do better at. The company needs everyone to be doing a good job, and you're not in this position. So we'd like you to move or leave sometimes as a recommendation. So spending a lot of time on reasons and debating and sort of sharing that, no, the decision, oh, making clear the decision is a done deal, that we're not here to debate this with you. This has been concluded. So, so making that clear at the beginning is helpful. Otherwise, the, the uh, employee begins to become a debater and becomes emotional and gets into the details. And getting into the details is not productive, generally. So don't give a lot of reasons. Make, make sure it's clear it's, uh, it's a done deal and uh, get some help to do it. Bring help with you. Good advice. So, as I, But you spoke of language and I want I, yeah. I picked up a point. You, you asked me about hiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that was going to be the next, the next set of questions. Uh, but well, I'll let you run with it and then I can ask my questions. Well, hiring is the wrong word. Right. So this is exactly what I wanted to ask you about. So please continue. Yeah. And I learned this early. Hiring, it's a small bit of language and people debate the semantics of the words, but my grandmother uh, fought organized crime on the docks of Brooklyn, New York. And she would supervise the hiring of stevedores by the longshoremen. What, what are stevedores? 
Stevedores are the people who move the cargo around on the docks. And the, uh, I'm sorry, I may have this backwards. The stevedores hire the longshoremen to move the stuff around on the dock. Now we have containers, so it's a little different. In those days, they moved individual televisions around. By, but she supervised hiring. And hiring, uh, the, the picture I have of hiring is, is a bunch of people dying to have this job. And you interview them and evaluate them and you deign to pick one of them to right. take the job. And they're so grateful to have the job and, uh, and all the others are waiting for the next one. And that's hiring. And that is the wrong mindset for growing your company. And the word I substitute is recruiting. You're after people who have other options and they're the best. And you're, you have to sell them on the proposition of joining your company. You're not hiring them. You're recruiting them. So I, I seize up when I hear that word hiring uh, applied to growing your company. You need to recruit the very best people. What is the playbook for being a good recruiter? Or are there specific, just like in the, in the case of, of, of firing? Number, I guess there are many, I don't guess, there are many facets to successfully recruiting how have you in the past picked your candidates or your targets so to speak and then what does it look like to recruit successfully well i'll tell you my secret bill kraus we were he's our adult supervision recruited him from hp and bill came into my office and said I'd like to hire Deborah Engel to be our VP of Human Resources. And I said, Bill, we only have 35 people in this company. We can't afford a vice president of human resources. What are you, crazy? And Bill said, no, I'm not crazy. I know what I'm doing, and you're going to go along with me on this, and we're going to get Deborah in here to be HR. So we got Deborah to be HR, and she knew how to recruit people. <laughs> so she ran a process. She helped us all run a process. Uh, I can describe some of the aspects of the process, but that's how I learned how to recruit is I, I listened to Bill Krauss and allowed <laughs> very early in the history of our company to get a superly qualified HR person who knew how to do everything because she had done it for years. So uh, one rule of recruiting is you should have three candidates, any one of which you think could do the job before you choose one. If your company is rapidly growing, you trick them and you hire all three. You, you choose the one that's going to be for this job and then you find other jobs for the other two because they're great and that's a, that's a side issue. So when you're rapidly growing and you invest all this time in a three-candidate process, you got to look at the other. After you choose one, the other two are pretty good, so you want to not just throw them away and find a place to reject them. them. You, these are people you're recruiting. They already have jobs. And, um, and then I got tricked um, early in my recruiting days. We were recruiting the, the uh, salespeople. So we got a professional salesperson recruiter. See, an engineer doesn't know what a good salesperson looks like. So you need to recruit. You need a recruiting team that knows what a good salesperson looks like if you're recruiting a salespeople. And they sent me in to interview this guy, a very senior sales guy. And I came back and I said, I love this guy. He's super. And then they said, well, what do you know about him? What'd you learn about him? And I thought about it. And I said, nothing, actually. 
I did all the talking. <laughs> this guy had tricked me into doing all the talking. So, and I really like myself. So it really, <laughs> I thought he was super. So one of, one of the things that you have to do is not be snookered, especially if you're recruiting salespeople who are good at this. Yeah. <laughs> now, by definition, if you're recruiting, as you mentioned, these people have jobs, they have other opportunities how did you differentiate if you ended up coming in as a closer or watching people close the deal? How did you differentiate 3Com? How did you make it more attractive than all the other opportunities it might have had in front of them? Well, it got easier and easier over time, but at the very beginning it was very hard because no one really knew what networking was or what the internet was or what a personal computer was. So that was part of our sales proposition. And so a lot of hiring, oh, did I say hire just then? You did. Yeah, I correct myself. So we made, I made some recruiting mistakes early. And one of the reasons to, I was driven to, because I couldn't get anyone to come join the company because uh. they didn't believe that it would amount to much or that networking was important or something. But over time, as the internet emerged and as networking became more important it became easier and easier to sell the vision of a worldwide internet that people wanted to participate in building but it is hard at the beginning because you have very you have to be really persuasive like steve jobs who i'll keep mentioning because he's a buddy a mentor of mine he was successful because he was enormously persuasive so he could persuade people to do stuff that others couldn't persuade them to do. You walked into his reality distortion field and you'd believe anything. So part of the knack is learning how to be persuasive about your company and why people should join it. And then there's the compensation subject. And uh, I, I remember this event. It stuck with me. This I was recruiting this kid as a, well, not so much a kid, as a uh, engineering man, a senior engineering manager reporting to the vice president. And I offered him a stock option. And I asked him if the offer was attractive to him. And he said, you know, Bob, I don't understand stock options or anything, so I'm counting on you, he says to me. I'm counting on you that when we go public, people won't think that you took advantage of me. <laughs> but this offer had been prepared by Deborah Engel according to an airtight HR policy. So I was confident this was a fair offer to him. And when we went public, he got a house, yeah. which is, uh, was the rule of thumb. Uh, the, not the VP of engineering, but the directors of engineering should all get a house out of it. He got his house, so my conscience is clear. <laughs> and on the per you have to be persuasive about the company piece that you mentioned. Uh, in practice, what did that look like for you guys? I mean, you turn it, uh, I'm just making things up, but I know that this is an approach that some people use. Do you make the company about more than the company? It's about a movement. It's about this seismic shift that you can be on the forefront of. How do you, what are the ingredients or what were the ingredients in practice that made, that made the company, made well, you persuasive in presenting the company? Well, all that you just said is part of the pitch, but the core of it is credibility. That is, are they going to believe you when you say all those things that you just said? So it's how do you get credibility. And I view it as a spiraling thing. You have to start with little bits of credibility and then spiral up to little bigger ones. And the technique for that, 
is promises. Now, you've heard people say you need to keep your promises. My advice is slightly different. You need to make promises Mm. and then keep them. Right. But making promises is a way of spiraling up the credibility. So, so in dealing in a sales situation or dealing uh, and recruiting is a sales situation, you got to start with little bits of credibility, showing up on time, just being sure that what you say is true, don't exaggerate much. Um, and then eventually you believe you've spiraled up to the level of credibility where you can ask the question, are you going to join or not? And that's a test of how successfully you've spiraled up your credibility in that case. Are there other ways to build credibility that were important ingredients aside from the making and keeping of promises, building from the small to the large? Well, the other is to use the team with which, in the case of uh, recruiting, this person's going to work. It's that team that's recruiting the person, not you. Because these are the people that uh, he or she's going to work with. And so they're, they're the most important factor in their evaluation of whether they want to work with these people or not. So the, you have to push down the recruiting to the people who are going to work with this person. What did the recruiting process look like in the sense that you're, you're simultaneously recru- recruiting, finding candidates you hope to recruit and vetting right? in the sense that you're going to, in some cases, end up in a room with a salesperson who's very, very, very good at selling themselves, but they not, may not be very good at selling a product. And I'm curious to know if there are any aspects of the hiring process that you feel were particularly important. And I'll just, to, to mention one thing that uh, I, I do not have experience, much experience hiring. I have some, but not, not a ton. And uh, I was chatting with a friend, Kyle Maynard, who had been taught himself from a very successful CEO, and there are many different approaches to hiring, that when the coworkers or the prospective colleagues would interview a prospect, he would have them on, on a number of factors, rate them from one to 10, but they couldn't use a seven, because seven is a somewhat lukewarm, non-committal number, versus a binary six, which is barely passing, so that's a no, or an eight, which is much more committal. And I thought to myself, wow, that's quite clever. And so I've been applying that in many different situations in my life, not just hiring. But were there any particular rules or approaches that you have used or seen used that that you believe to be very helpful for ensuring you're getting the right candidate? Obvious answer, reference checking. Yeah. You must check references. Mm -hmm. But you have to be pretty creative. Yeah. Yeah. Often people will give you a list of references. Right. And you need to call all of those people and check. You'd be surprised how many times there's a surprise there. But then you have to use backdoor references, that is, people that were not recommended. Right. And you need to be very careful and listen carefully to your references when you're checking them. And that that matters. If you take shortcuts and you assume that the references that they gave would be positive, that you're that's a slippery slope. Right. Um, You'll be surprised how many times people will give a reference who dings them. It <laughs> <That> is surprising. <laughs> it's it's sort of like fundraising too. You should check with the you're about to refer your customer or uh, your VC to someone. You should check with them. By the way, may I use you as a reference? Yes. 
Will you say good things about us? Yes. Oh, good. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. <laughs> Important follow-up question. But when you call somebody cold and say, oh, who are you? Oh, you're Tom. Oh, yeah. Oh, my favorite thing is the good me- the good meeting thing. You're, when you're a venture capitalist, this is a slightly different situation, but you're a venture capitalist and you're evaluating a company and they say, we've had a good meeting with Procter & Gamble. <laughs> really? That's great. And who would they meet with? They give you the name and phone number and then you call the person and they don't remember the name of the company or anything. They don't remember nothing. <laughs> That's just forgetting to call the guy at Procter & Gamble and say, I'd like to use you as a reference and if so, will you say good things about me? Yeah. And if the answer is no, you don't give them as a reference. Uh, but checking references is all important. But you have to do it deeply. You can't do it superficially. Well, creatively you know, you too, right? Because as you mentioned, uh, at least uh, in some cases, I know references are worried about liability if they say something negative that impacts the hireability of someone. So That's why you have to listen carefully. Listen carefully. They send you the signals right. under the cloak of that fear. So the worst thing you can get, you know, by uh, they'll say, I can confirm that Fred worked here between April 17th, 1989 and October of the next year. And if that's all they're willing to say, you should take that as a bad reference and yeah. um, discount it. I was, I was uh, chatting with one founder I, I worked with at a point, and one of his approaches was to, he would leave a voicemail and also send an email to the reference, and it would say, uh, if so-and-so is a 9 or 10 out of 10, or if you would recommend them 9 or 10 out of 10, then please call me back or respond to my email. If not, you don't need to reply. <laughs> and so it gave them plausible deniability. Uh, they could say, hey, I never got it. But nonetheless, he was able to gather information without being explicitly told information, which I thought was quite clever. I wish I knew that. There's so many, so many different ways I want to go. You meant, you've mentioned Steve Jobs a few times, and uh, we were we were sitting across from the table before we started recording, and you were on your laptop, and I was doing a, a second review of my notes, and I laughed at one point, and you said, "Are you laughing at something?" You said, "Are you laughing at me or at something else?" And I know we were just we were joking around. So it was a quote. It might be a misquote, but since you mentioned Jobs, I'd love to touch on that. And uh, the quote, I guess, this is from CNBC. About a year ago. So Steve Jobs came to our wedding, says Metcalf. And what's wrong with having Steve Jobs at your wedding? No one remembers anything about the wedding except the fact that Steve Jobs was there. So that's what I was laughing at. I, if, if you, in fact, said that, even if you didn't, it's pretty funny. Uh, but, I did, in fact, say that, and it is, in fact, true. <laughs> <laughs> so, A, can you just describe what it was like having Steve Jobs at your wedding? And then, B, uh, since it is since I, I believe you said, or at least uh, based on my recollection, that he he was something of a mentor. Uh, what you learned from him? Uh, what were some of the things you took away from spending time with him? Uh, any and all thoughts? Well, he called me out of the blue when I was sitting in my apartment in Boston, Massachusetts. I had two apartments, one in Boston and one in Palo Alto, in 1979, and I was co- consulting and I was going back and forth. And one lonely, dark evening in June of. 79, a few days after I started my company, Incorporated, a guy named Steve from a company named Apple called me at night out of the blue. I'd never heard of Steve and I'd never heard of Apple. He was in a city I hadn't heard of. I had never heard of Cupertino because that's way south of Palo Alto. I never got down to Cupertino. Or maybe I went past it on the way to San Jose. I'm not sure. And he was interested in... um, 
he knew I was a networking guy and he had these PCs and he was interested in networking them and would I come down and meet with him, which I did. And we went to a sort of a organic hippie restaurant on Stevens Creek <laughs> Boulevard and he pitched me on joining Apple. But I told him I just started my company like last week. And not only that, Steve, I have a proposal for how to network your PCs together. And here it is. I've called it Orchard. See, Orchard, yeah, Apple. Apple Orchard. I thought that was so clever. <laughs> anyway, that went right by Steve. He had no interest whatsoever in that. But then a good thing happened. He didn't, he wasn't um, pissed that I turned him down. He helped me build my company. He, it was helpful all along. He lived in Woodside. We were, uh, my wife and I were living, uh, my soon to be wife and I were living in Palo Alto. We later moved to Woodside, by the way. And there's a little white church there in Woodside, California, and it turned out to be two, three blocks from Steve's house. So he, he was invited, of course, but then he actually showed up, which no one expected, with his then-girlfriend and was a perfectly fine wedding attendee, and no one remembers anything else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose, you know, at least they, they remember your wedding was associated with Steve Jobs. I suppose a lot of weddings just have no no data point, no visual whatsoever to make them uh, memorable. So there's at least that. Well, I had been, we had, had double dated with Steve uh, before that. What was that like? Well, we have a, a, a vivid recollection. We went to the symphony one night up in uh, San Francisco and we're driving back along 280 and there's a big hill coming up Daly City. And uh, the car we were in, I forget what car it was, but it... Uh, got a flat. And so he pulled over on this hilly road with, you know, Daly City over here to the left. And and it became clear to me what was about to happen. Steve stood with the two women chatting them up while I changed the tire. <laughs> so he was an, in, I was the engineer. He was the leader and uh, the uh, spokesperson. Well, I think I learned, um, so Steve could be a jerk. Yeah. And uh, I've always viewed that as a package deal. It came with the rest of him. It was part inseparable. He had to be a jerk because his standards were so high. And that's what I learned from him is to have high standards and not put up with mediocre things. And, of course, if doing that, you piss people off and then they think you're a jerk. And I think that's how it happens. Mm -hmm. He was scary. I mean, he was superly persuasive. And he, could, he, he and Gates had the same feature. They could make you feel like you were gonna, that you were an idiot and you would suffer for the rest of your life if you didn't agree with them. You know, that kind of intimidating, both of them have this feature. And he, uh, he had it. Um, but I had, I had learned a lesson that protected me from him. I, I worked, have I mentioned that I worked at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, which was packed with really brilliant people. Yeah including Butler Lamson, who is another mentor of mine at Xerox. And I learned from Butler that you are not obligated to change your mind just because you lose an argument. Hmm. Because Butler could win any argument. Right. But he wasn't always right. Yes. And I learned to just step back and think about it a little more, and maybe he wasn't right. So you're not obligated to change your mind just because you lost the argument. And then you run into Steve Jobs, and boy, is that a protective. Because he could win any argument, too. Right. But you had to you know, get away from his, out of his reality distortion field, which is an R-squared field. You can 
back out of it, about 15 or 20 feet. We're safe. <laughs> and then you, then you could think about what he said. And mostly what he was saying was defending high standards. Mm. Is there uh, anything else that, that, that you would say you learned or observed from Steve Jobs that, that stuck with you? I mean, the high standards goes a long way. Just that alone obviously covers a ton of ground, I would think. Um, well, he called me one day. I'm fond of telling this story. And he said, um, Pixar is debuting Toy Story at De Anza College, and I'd love for you to come, and I'll send a limo to your house, pick you up. And I'm this network plumber, so 3Com had, this must have been, in, when was Toy Story debuted? 90-something? Yeah, it was 90, I want to say, this is, this is a bit of a stab in the dark, but uh, I want to say it's like 95, 96. That might have been when they IPO'd. Pixar was the first stock I ever bought. Uh, so I, I'm pegging it around. So around then. Around then. So 3Com was substantial, and, and uh, I was a minor tycoon. And so he sent the limo to my house, and we went down to Danza College, and we saw the movie. And, and he had a red carpet, like a, you know, a Hollywood red carpet. And he shrewdly hired photographers with huge flash attachments who would then take our pictures and make us feel important. So it was really cool. And then I'm coming out of the movie, and there's Steve at a sort of an outgoing receiving line. And I told him this film was just fabulous, and I really enjoyed it and how great he must feel. And then I said, but I want to remind you, Steve, that every pixel of that movie was carried by Ethernet. <laughs> and Steve smiled. And so this is another thing I learned from him. And he said, thank you. And I've been living off, thank you, <laughs> for ever since. So, so he was capable of gratitude, and he was really good at it. Because I remember that moment today. And I'm saying, he just paused, you know. So I would be in doubt about what he was going to say. And he said, thank you. And I think that was the purpose in inviting me to the opening, was to thank me for lugging his bits around so he could make that movie. <laughs> what a great story. Ah, uh, well... So we were talking about pixels, bits, as promised early on and reiterated to bounce around, to live up to my uh, reputation that I don't have to defend. Uh, <laughs> network effects. You are a network expert in many different respects. Are there particular misconceptions or misunderstanding of network effects? Uh that, that people have. Network, people talk about network effects a lot, and in certainly in many company pitches, you hear it. It's a it's 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 a phrase that is used very very widely. Uh, is it often misused? If so, what are people missing? Uh, this, this may not be a good question, but I, no, I'd it's a good question. And the most there is a mis there's one principle of misuse. People mix up word of mouth. Um, testimonials with the network effect. So I really like this product. I think you should use it too. Well, that's good. To ha that's a good thing, but it's not the network effect. Mm -hmm. The network effect is when it's in my interest for you to use this. Right. That's a different effect. It's because much stronger right. than word of mouth testimonials. That's the one mm -hmm. misuse. The, uh, so Metcalfe's law, which is about the, it's a quantification of the network effect. It says the value grows as the square of the number of users, which is pretty powerful. By the way, it's technically not exponential. 
-hmm. Even though the two is in the exponent, we call that quadratic, not exponent. But in any case, I'll take exponential. <laughs> and the trouble with it, the principal complaint, is that as n goes to infinity, the value goes to infinity. And everyone has a hunch that that's not really true about networks, that they don't go to infinity with n. And uh, so I looked at that. I wrote a paper a couple of years ago looking at that feature. And of course, one of the constraints I brought to this paper is that I would defend my law. I would not revise it. So just to be clear, right. uh, this was not an honest investigation. But I figured out how to solve this problem without changing my law. That's a good day. Yeah, and, and then I did some math. But the, um, the trick is that n doesn't go to infinity. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the value doesn't go to infinity. Right. So that's how I fixed it. And n over time. So I did a model, called it the netoid, which modeled adoption rates over as a function of time. What uh, it's what an adopt and you know what an adoption curve looks like. It looks like this, and it looks like this. And so this netoid function was a way of saying, well, you can't grow the network bigger than the universe, and there's only seven billion people here, and there's only three billion users of Facebook. But, you know, these are all caps on the value of the network. And then I took the first 10 years of Facebook and mapped it onto Metcalfe's Law using this adoption figure. And by the way, Facebook's about halfway there, about half of people, half the people in the world use Facebook. So on, the, on this adoption curve, they're right in the middle of the, most, of the steepest part. But as they get close to everybody being on Facebook, well, then their growth will taper off as they... And then the value will not go to infinity. The value will also. So I published that paper in a peer-reviewed journal. So I'm happy to say. So I have some defense of my law. So that's the network effect. When was that published? December 2015 or 16 in, in uh, IEEE Computer Magazine, mm -hmm. which is peer-reviewed. <laughs> you know, I was about to jump all over you, but now I'll stand out. <laughs> but I like to say, you know, Facebook is the uh, Metcalf's Law Company. It's mm. the, which reminds me, in the early days of Facebook, I went to visit uh, Zuck and Cheryl when their place, it was still on California Avenue in Palo Alto before they moved to Menlo Park. And I got an appointment with the two of them, and my mission was to discuss with them the impact of Metcalf's Law, what they thought of Metcalf's Law, and how it bore on the growth, on the growth of their company, and I had all sorts of questions. So I show up at the head of um, California Avenue. It's up off El Camino, and then it end, dead ends, and there's a building over here, and it was right over here, seething with activity. And I'm sitting in the lobby, cooling my heels in the lobby for an hour. And then I'm, a woman comes out and says, I'm sorry, uh, Zuck can't see you today, but Cheryl can see you, so please come in. And I met Cheryl Sandberg, uh, uh, Zuck's adult supervision. Mm -hmm. And uh, I began my little pitch to begin the discussion, and then I realized within 10 seconds that Cheryl Sandberg had never heard of Metcalf's Law. So that was going to be weak, but she summoned <laughs> one of her Stanford PhD mathematicians to join the meeting. And he had never heard of oh. Metcalf's Law. So the, the whole meeting just ended a complete collapse. And <laughs> anyway, I still believe Facebook is a Metcalf's Law company that well uh, uh, leverages the network effect. And not just positive word of mouth, but... Mm -hmm. uh, the utility. It's uh, the, in the interest of each user to sign up other people. Mm -hmm.
because it makes their use of the network better. And that creates this very strong network effect. Is there, uh, well, let me back into this. So as an investor, you've spent uh, plenty of time in the role of venture capitalist. Uh, you've heard, no doubt, many, many pitches that in some respect use network effect uh, as a claim for defensibility. We will have this network effect and it will, be, it will create this competitive moat of sorts they'll be very hard to replicate. At least that's something I, I've run into a lot. Uh, is, is there an easy way, maybe not easy, simple either, to differentiate network effects that are create defensibility or improve defensibility versus those that don't? Or if it's defined the way that you're defining it properly, maybe that's always the case. I just don't know, so I figured I would ask. Is, is there any way to, to distinguish those two? Well, Metcalf's law says that the value grows as, meaning is proportional to the number squared. But it doesn't say what the constants of proportionality are. And those can be changed. So when Facebook adds a feature, you expect that curve, whatever that curve was before, will my theory would say, is still quadratic, but it's been moved because the constants of the services delivered are enhanced. While writing this paper, I discovered a sociologist, I'm blanking on his name now, but for year, decades he studied people and he, he determined that uh, you can have 150 friends. And he was using that term, friends, in the, whenever it was, 50s, 60s, so on. What was his name? We can put it in the show notes, too. I don't get it. But in any case, senior moment. But it was 150. <laughs> Based on your factual recall, I hate to even consider what so, kind of moments I'm always having. Yeah, all right. <laughs> so there it was. I, I encounter it. You can have the human cognitive processing system can tolerate. You can take care of 150 friends. That's a, like a constant of the universe. So I call up Facebook, and I say, well, how many connection friend, friends connections do you have and, um, and how many friends do you have? And then you just divide one into the other and I'll be damned, it was 140. Wow. And remember, Facebook is rapidly growing now, so who knows what's going to happen. Now, you would, well, that was a surprising answer to me, both because you would think that now with the tools of Facebook, we can tolerate more friends than when the days of the, of the campfire but that number was still close to 150. Would be, I actually go back and try it again. Yeah. Uh, total number of connections divided by the total number of people, which is the average number of friends per person, was about the same as the sociologist yeah. had predicted. Yep. That is a, that is that is really uh, surprising. I, this is the first time I've heard it, but one would expect it to be anything but the same number because I suppose one could make the argument that you might on some level expect many, many thin connections without much communication on a platform like Facebook, but that the number of active uh, threads of communication would be even, even fewer because the volume of communication, the ease of communication. Oh, so it would be a lower number. That's right, wow. potentially. Because when you're at the campfire, it's like, all right, you, you see... 
Joe, your neighbor farmer, when you walk a mile down the street and bump into someone from his family, but otherwise Joe has no communication with you. Whereas if you're on Facebook, any one of your preferred nodes can message you incessantly. Uh, so it's really interesting that it's so close to that 150 number. Well, another reason it should be lower yeah. is that Facebook is growing right. still, and especially then. So a lot of those networks of friends are just are brand new, and right. they're, they're not they haven't finished growing out yet. So yeah. that would be another reason. And it was 140, not 150, but so it was a little bit below. So, that, but yours is another reason. But the reason it should be higher is that we now have tools for right. like it's my practice to wish people a happy birthday and there's a tool in Facebook that prompts you when the friends your friends right. birthdays are and I type in many happy returns exclamation point every single time many happy returns yeah i wish there was a tool where I could just press a button and it would automatically say many happy returns. But right now I type it each time. And I think that's more authentic for me to type it each time. <laughs> I think it, it seems much more authentic. But you see how I can say happy birthday to many more people than before because I have a computer helping me, reminding me and delivering it. And So I'm still betting that this new number will be bigger than that sociologist assessed. So many happy returns is your, uh, your go-to birthday greeting yes. in this case do you have a go-to salutation when you cheers with someone or you're at a party and people want to make some type of uh announcement's not the right word um, i guess salutation i'm blanking on the proper english word for this uh but uh do you have any go-to or go-to's in that type of situation i do what are they it's also the beginning and ending of every email that i send all right ahoy Ahoy. And I have three reasons. And you only need one reason, by the way, but I have three reasons three why I, I love Ahoy. Mm -hmm. First of all, uh, according to 23andMe, I am mostly a Viking. <laughs> and Ahoy is the ancient Viking war cry. So to be true to my heritage, I must say Ahoy. The second reason is I have a fleet of boats in Maine. They're tiny little boats. They're not Russian oligarch yachts. <laughs> my big boat is 32 feet long. Yeah. And when you're a sea, it's ahoy is a way of greeting someone on the ocean, which you can see is not too far from a Viking war cry. But the third reason is really killer. When Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, the question arose, what do you say when you pick up the telephone? You have to say something or they won't know you're there. And Bell proposed that the word be ahoy. <laughs> and I believe it was Edison who convinced everyone to use hello instead of ahoy. So in, and uh, I have a previous, in a previous life won the Alexander Graham Bell medal. So in loyalty to uh, Bell, I say ahoy. Ahoy. And I, I like to say it three times, actually. But so you raise the glass and you say ahoy, ahoy, ahoy? Ahoy, ahoy. Yep. I like it. So I run a... Uh, uh, a summer camp. Mm -hmm. uh, average age of the attendees is 60-ish. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have toasts. And we're encouraged. We encourage really elaborate toasts. And there's, they're much longer than that. But they're many, much of the same sentiment that is around adventure and fellowship. So what is this? How did this camp come to be? About 20 years ago. I have this island in off the coast of Maine. It's a beautiful place. It's uh, empty. Mm -hmm. And it's um, 
I began to share it with friends. I would invite them to come out. We'd get in my boat, go out there and pitch tents. And, and there's a little camp there. A camp in Maine is a little cottage without electricity. And then uh, we've been building it up. So there's about um, usually 20 or 30 of the big boys show up. And more and more, they come by boat. So I have many moorings in this little, I have a little cove. And it, uh, there were nine moorings last year, but I'm going to have 11 moorings this year. Because the big boys sometimes come by boat, and that's kind of... Then they can sleep on their boats, and then I don't have to pitch a tent for them. Mm-hmm. And then we um, we have adventures and tell stories and toasts. We do toasts, now that you mention it. Do you have any... Uh, do any stick in your mind in particular? Do you have any any memorable toasts or alternate toasts that you'd like to give? I'm not nearly the most creative, but some of them are poems, just long poems. Hmm. So it's an opportunity to... Uh, occasionally somebody dies. Hmm. Not at the camp, but, right. but we acknowledge. <laughs> well, not yet at the camp. Right. And so my my version, uh, that's when I use, uh, I have an E.E. E. Cummings poem that I've memorized that I use as my toast in that case to remember them. Is it a long poem? No, it's not very long at all. Would you like me to recite it? I would love for you to recite it. Buffalo Bill's Defunct who used to ride a watery, smooth, silver stallion and shoot clay pigeons. One, two, three, four, five, just like that. Jesus, he was a handsome man. But what I want to know is, how do you like your blue-eyed boy, Mr. Death? Wow. And occasionally somebody dies, and that's my way of lamenting their departure and I have blue eyes so that sort of a personal connection yeah how do you like your blue-eyed boy Mr. Death it's it's very uh, makes me think of the expression memento mori remembering that you are going to die in Latin and what renaissance or some renaissance as I recall it painters used to do is put a a invisible to the layman's eye for all intents and purposes a skull in their painting in some location that they knew was there that they would notice every time they looked at the painting to the to remind themselves of their own mortality and the fact that their time was finite and limited have you seen these skulls i have they've been po- have to be pointed out to you i suppose yeah, i have and in fact you know this it's it's this was not placed here for this but uh, no, it's a little obvious, but I never, I've never explained oh, to anyone. Oh, there it is. So I put a skull in the bottom of my About the Author photo without any explanation so that whenever I would look in this book, I would see that. And that's Memento Mori? That is Memento Mori. There are many ways to do it. Uh, but it's good practice. So I would imagine, as you said, you have a personal connection to that. So every time <laughs> someone passes, ending on a line with blue eyes... Certainly serves as a, I would, I would imagine, a very powerful reminder. So I'm going to shift gears a, a little bit, or a lot, as is, as is my want, and make sure I didn't miss anything critical in these notes, which I don't believe I did. And I'd love to ask you a number of questions that I ask many guests I have uh, on this show. Uh, the first is about... 
books. Now, we had a little bit of, of conversation before this that may lead us, even if the answer is I don't have any, that will take us in and of itself in an interesting direction. Are there any books that you have gifted, uh, frequently gifted to other people or recommended to other people? There's one in particular. It's called Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Shrugged. All right. Which is my favorite book. Why is that your favorite book? Well, I read it for the first time right after it was written. And uh, I was, uh, I think, in eighth grade or so, mm-hmm. so, at an impressionable age. And I fell in love with Dagny Taggart. And I always wanted to be Howard Rourke. And there was something, there was some feelings I had at the time that it said were okay. <laughs> Gave me permission right. to feel a certain way about myself. Mm-hmm. And wanting, and it related to competitiveness and, and that, and winning, and and how this, and it touched on the invisible hand of free enterprise and capitalism and that whole package. I bought into lock, stock, and barrel. So I've been giving out Atlas Shrugs since the '60s. Ever since, yeah. And uh, I, I understand that that labels me a kook of some kind, but I don't really care much about that anymore. Well, That's my favorite book. I will say if you're a kook, then you're in, you're in, you're in good company. Uh, the, the last book I worked on, Tribe of Mentors, with something like 140 interviews with top performers from at least 20 different fields, there were four or five books that popped up frequently, and Atlas Shrugged was one of them. So The like second uh, on my list, since you asked... I, yes. I don't think you did, but anyway, is no, The Selfish Gene. The Selfish Gene, Richard Dawkins. Yeah, I am a, I'm just arch-Darwinian yeah. person. I love that book. and how It just seemed to explain everything. Yeah. Just trace it all back to the math of, of uh, natural selection and mutation and so on. So The Selfish Gene is another one that I recommend highly, frequently. I read them a long time ago. So. Have you always been involved with boats? Why do you have a fleet of boats? Well, on Long Island, yeah. we had a 14-foot runabout with a 10-horsepower motor, which I used every summer while growing up. So that would be it. Um, my fleet is, is in Maine. So we go to Maine in the summer, and we have an island camp 10 miles out in the ocean. And uh, the big boat is a lobster yacht, 32-foot lobster boat thing with a little teak on it that we use to... Well, we have when cruised. you say teak, is that the wood or is that a feature of the boat? I don't know. It's wood. It's wood. All right. So teak is a yachty wood, and the boat is a working boat hull, a lobster boat, but it's teaked out. So it's called a lobster. It's not called a lobster boat. It's called a lobster yacht. I see. Right. It has a head. It has bunks, which are things right. that you don't have in a lobster boat. I see. But I that's see. the big, that's the flagship of the fleet. And then I have a 15-foot uh, runabout with a, fifth, a plastic runabout. We call her Tupperware, that's her name, and she has a 50-horsepower engine, so she moves right along. And then we have a 12-and-a-half-foot wooden sailboat called Flash, and her principal use is to circumnavigate islands near our island. So you leave our island and go around Hurricane Island, or you, you know, just navis- circumnavigation of small islands in the Penobscot Bay of Maine. And then we have a bevy of dinghies and stand-up paddle boards and kayaks, which we keep generally out in the island camp. So uh, we ply the waters of the North Atlantic like my Scandinavian forebears. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That sounds amazing. Uh, I have a friend who 
whenever he is feeling <clears throat> dear friend, uh, well, actually I shouldn't say whenever he t- spends three to four weeks on the water per year and has done that with his family for some time and uses it as an opportunity to reset. And, uh, this will get to the question, but he, f- he uses it also as a means of resetting on an annual basis and, uh, reassessing his priorities and gaining clarity. What do you ever feel overwhelmed? This could be past tense too, uh, overwhelmed or scattered. And in those circumstances, if, if that has ever happened, what have you found to help for you? I frequently suffer from that feeling being overrun. And that's generally because I overcommit. And I haven't learned after all these years how not to overcommit. I forget that you commit to something now and then it gets to be really big later when everything else is getting big at the same time. And then, but the remedy is uh, to make a list and prioritize and just focus on the top item of the list and get it done. And the, so prioritize and concentrate on that and then just ignore everything else, sometimes to your detriment, because sometimes things need taken care of. But that's my way out, is to concentrate on one thing. What are your values or priorities that you use to rank order or to select those top items, if that makes sense? Or maybe an example, because people prioritize using different means of weighting the things on a given list. Uh, I mean, you've had quite a few tremendous successes. Uh, I'd just love to hear you expand on that if, if, uh, if anything comes to mind. Well, there's two dimensions. And you, you're, you've heard all this, because you especially have heard all this. But you know, <laughs> the, the two of the dimensions are urgency and importance. Mm-hmm. And so things find their way onto the list by virtue of one or the other, some combination of urgency and importance. And the thing I learned a long time ago is to take the list and break it into three pieces, the stuff you must absolutely do as soon as possible. Then there's the stuff that's that uh, do if you get to, and then there's the stuff that you just forget that list and throw it out. Mm-hmm. So what I used to do, when, actually when I was growing 3Com, in the very early days, like the day of founding, it was my practice to do a to-do list every day. And I would, when the next day came, I would turn the page and I would transcribe all the things that were left on this list onto the new page. And leaving things, failing to copy things that had not been done onto the new page was a big breakthrough for me. When, I, when it was, began to be okay for me to not transcribe something that had not been done, my life got a lot better. So there's, there's just some things that get on your to-do list. You just have to suffer the consequences of ignoring them. That's a big deal. I mean, that's a, the, but playing this game between urgency and importance is a perennial problem. Oh, yeah. It's, I think uh, Eisenhower used to, as I, I'm trying to remember, the Eisenhower Matrix used to f- also think of things in these, these two dimensions and would try to pay attention or block out time, schedule time, to pay attention to the important but not urgent quadrant, which is prone to getting lost in the shuffle. Uh, so when I, uh, um, I've had a, a personal assistant um, since this, somewhere in the 70s. 
And then when I came here to the University of Texas, I have an endowed chair, and there's enough money in the chair for me to have an assistant. And so I got an assistant seven years ago. And I would come, and I was hoping to have a new life as a professor and find out what that's about, and I would come to work every day, and my day would be full of meetings that my assistant had arranged. So after two years of this, I outplaced my assistant, found him another job, and now I don't have a personal assistant. So any appointments I make, and you'll be surprised how few appointments I have. (laughs) (laughs) Because my assistant would carry, you know, Bob should really should should meet with these people, so therefore I'm going to schedule the meeting. But I have a different evaluation criteria for should, mm-hmm. and so I I have many fewer meetings. That's another way of of um, pawing through the urgent and the important is to not delegate that, but mm-hmm. to take it upon yourself because you can take responsibility for ignoring really important things and people and so on. I have right at the moment. I have twelve thousand unread emails in my inbox. That's a lot. And I, you, you know, the algorithm. You, you go and you start with the newest one. Right. And you start working back, older and older and older and older and older, and you go as far as you can before you run out of time. And then the next day, there's a whole bunch of new ones have arrived, and so sometimes you never get. And that's how you accumulate twelve thousand unread emails. Yes, I'm unfortunately in a very similar very similar position as the moment. Why don't you write a book on how to solve that problem? Yeah, I think it's I think it's mostly running away and changing your email address. I've, I've somewhat been convinced, and I remember I was told at one point by Robert Scoble, uh, who's uh, known in many technology circles, he said, I've I've realized in analyzing my email that for every t- every response I send out, I get 1.75 email in return. <laughs> So how, how you make that work seems to boil down to fewer responses. By the way, Scoble's a genius, so I do whatever he says. Yeah. <laughs> but the but it's true. If you answer an email, you're guaranteed to get an answer to your answer. So yep. don't answer it. <laughs> if you're open to it, uh, I, I would love to talk about challenging times. And I, I have no time in, partic- in, in mind in particular, but a lot of folks, and we only have a, f- a few questions left. I'm having fun. So just a, just a few questions. Um, I'm having more fun than you are. Uh, perfect. Uh, that's, that makes me, well, this, this is tough because then it, then it then reinforces the fun that I'm having. So I'm not sure. Now maybe I'm having more fun. But the um, No, I'm having more fun than you are. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's common, uh, I think, for... People listening to podcasts or reading a magazine profile to at times become very intimidated by figures they consider very successful. And they may assume that these people are hitting home runs every time they step up to bat. Uh, Are there any particular uh, tough times or moments that you'd be willing to share? uh, And furthermore, what, what helped to get back on your feet or to regain your footing? I have no trouble with this. I have many of them. You accumulate them as time passes on. And I'm fond of saying, you know, one of my favorite songs is New Kid in Town by the Eagles and uh, J.D. Souther. Because I've been a has-been a few times. I know how to be a has-been because I've had some practice. But I'm fond of saying, 
uh, maybe it has been, but it's better than being a never was. <laughs> <laughs> but the story that comes to mind, I alluded to it earlier, relating to my bitterness toward Harvard University, which I should get over with, and I understand it's a childish, petulant sort of thing. <laughs> but uh, uh, so here I am working at MIT toward my degree at Harvard. And I submit a draft of my thesis, intending to graduate in 1972, June. And my thesis advisor encouraged this thought. And the, um, uh, so I went on a job talk tour, and I got nine job offers. And it was easy to get job offers because I was a networking guy, and networking was hot. So universities thought that if they hired me, it would be easier to get grants from ARPA. So I understand. It wasn't me. It was the networking thing. But then I turned down nine, eight of the nine offers and accepted the one at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, which was a hard choice. They offered me more money. I didn't have to teach. I didn't have to raise money. I could just enjoy Palo Alto. And I was a big Beach Boys fan, so I was sure that was related and I notified my parents, whose life's dream was that their son would go to college, and here he was getting a Harvard PhD, and I was inviting them to the Harvard Yard for the event. And my uh, then wife, may she rest in peace, resigned her job as a, uh, at MIT as an uh, administrator there, and she got a job at Stanford. It was all set up. And my oral defense of my thesis was two weeks before graduation. And I went in there, and you know, you give your pitch, and then you leave the room, and then they talk to each other, and then you come back, they invite you back in, and then they shake your hand and congratulate you on being a PhD. Only that's not what happened. I walked back in there, and they told me that my thesis was deficient, and that I was not going to get my PhD. Uh-oh. So I called uh, Xerox. They, who had hired me on a job talk, a PhD job talk, and uh, Bob Taylor there, may he rest in peace, said, oh, why don't you come out anyway and you can finish your thesis here. Oh, wow, super. The hard call was to my parents, which is, you know, don't come to Harvard Yard because it's not happening. So that was a horrible, horrible, so I see that's my New York accent there. Yeah. Horrible, horrible, horrible thing to happen. And that was only the 10th thing that caused me to hate Harvard. And it was a pretty big one. So that was a, a pretty gruesome uh, because everyone finds out about it and then you, know, you failed. And there's a good chance you'll never get your PhD if you fail your defense. I, was, I lucked out. I invented Ethernet. And, and in the course of inventing Ethernet, I wrote a chapter of my thesis that satisfied Harvard that my thesis was sufficiently novel that I could graduate. So how's that one? Does that answer your question? Well, so there's many more. No, it's very good. It's a very good uh, first half. And the reason I say first half is that I'd love to hear if it threw you off balance. So let's just say right after the phone call with your parents and these various things. Uh, what type of state were you in, and how did you, I mean, because the Ethernet came later, I don't know exactly how much later, but between then and the invention of, of Ethernet, let's just say in the... It was a year sub, or so. Yeah, so the subsequent handful of weeks and months, uh, 
if you were in a funk, and I don't want to speak for you, but how did you, what, what helped to get to write yourself? Uh, the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. So when I moved there, it was heaven on earth. And I was grateful to them for accepting me even without my dissertation. And then they were helpful in being sure that I finished it. And the, um, but the excitement of moving to, you know, a New York boy goes to California. I really was a big Beach Boys fan. What I didn't realize is how far the ocean is from Palo Alto <laughs> and how cold and miserable it's it is when you get there. <laughs> so the Beach Boys were Southern California and I didn't, it didn't quite register with me. So. But that was, a, you know, moving to California was a big deal and it was fun and I enjoyed doing it. And San Francisco, as you know, is a fantastic, fantastic city. And I was moving there shortly after the, was a summer of love. Mm -hmm. I moved there in '72, so it was. Uh, so that was. So it wasn't a hard, deep funk because yeah. I had all this exciting new stuff going on. Now, if Xerox had said, "No, you stay in Boston, and you maybe will consider taking you if you ever finish your dissertation," that would have been hard to recover from. Different, different scenario. Yeah. So let's. You said you had lots of them. I'd love to to hear one more if you're open to it. Uh, let's see. Uh, maybe, maybe if there is one where you, you really had to kind of find your way out, if anything comes to mind. So here I was, the founder, chairman, CEO of 3Com Corporation. We had raised $1.1 million of venture capital in 1980. When was that? 81. And uh, we were burning through it. And Ethernet, uh, which I had predicted would help this company generate revenue and so on, was delayed in its takeoff. I was wrong. It turned in retrospect, I was wrong by six months as to how quickly three, uh, Ethernet would get picked up and when our revenues would start growing. But it did look pretty bleak at the time. Revenue, you know, cash is going like this, and the pickup is not occurring. And then uh, we had a board meeting, and I'm chairman, and I. I call the board meeting together, and one of my board members says, we've had, a, we've had a rump session without you, and we've concluded that we now want Bill to take over as CEO. And uh, Now, I had prepared for this moment, because in the, uh, in the uh, time before 3Com, I, had, I lived on Sand Hill Road. I met my wife on Sand Hill Road. I founded my company on Sand Hill Road. And as you may know, Sand Hill Road is where all the VCs are. Right. So when I had plenty of time to meet them all. And I learned the three things in their opinion that cause companies to fail. One was uh, the uncontrollable ego of the founder. Whoa, well that was, they had me nailed. And two <laughs> is a lack of focus. And three was a lack of money, which is self-serving advice. So when I came to present my business plan in 1980 to those same people, I handled those three cases preemptively up front. And one of the things I said is, uh, this company succeeding is more important to me than running it. It's a good line. And I believed it. Mm -hmm. And it was attractive to the investors. Sure. Yeah. This notion of the founder running things is, you know, is quite controversial. So, so here I am in the meeting where they're informing me that I'm not going to be CEO anymore. I'm, I'm going to be chairman. I own most of the company by that time still. But I wasn't going to be CEO. My buddy, Bill, who's a perfectly fine guy, is about to be CEO. 
So that was uh, um, an interesting meeting. Now, what the founder is supposed to do following that meeting is slam the door behind him and storm out the door and go start another company or do something crazy. But I didn't do that. You didn't, I, you didn't break your tennis racket. I did not. Exact, oh, good observation. Yes, I did not break my tennis racket. Hmm, hmm. Now, this company's success is more important to me than running it. I said that to these people, and they're now taking me up on that. And these are this board was a board that uh, that I had tricked into being. This is the first rate board. I had three of the top venture capitalists, Dick Kramlick and Wally Davis, and oh darn, a third guy whose name <laughs> I can remember in a few minutes. So I had handpicked this board. I had recruited them carefully. So what a, can I disagree with them? Especially after I told them <laughs> that it was more important I'd be successful. And that was the meeting in which they said, we'd like you to be head of sales and marketing because we need somebody to get out there and tell people about the product. And you seem, you know how to do that, so go do that. And plus, I knew that Bill was a sales and marketing expert, so he was going to be able to help me. So I accepted that. It took me about a week to stop being sort of rejected and depressed and wondering you know, whether I was going to leave or not and slam the door. And I didn't slam the door, so I suddenly started being head of sales and marketing, and walked Marlene around the building to try to convince her to be a salesperson, and, uh, and uh, found a recruiter to recruit the sales force and quickly learned how to sell. What time of day was that board meeting? Do you remember? Was it in the afternoon, late, early evening? Wouldn't be at night. No, it was during the day. What did you do after leaving that board meeting? What did the rest of the day look like, if you remember, for you? Uh, I'm sure I had to explain it to my wife, Robin, when I got home. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember that. Mm -hmm. Was there anything that... Uh, what advice would you give to... It doesn't necessarily have to be founders. I mean, it could be anyone who receives news that they are no longer going to be X or be with person Y, or it could be any number of situations, but who faces, who ends up facing news like that, what would your advice to them be? So to realize this fact, that it is very difficult to be self-aware. Self-awareness is hard stuff. And you see it on the campus of the University of Texas. If those people had mirrors, they wouldn't look like that. They, they don't see how the world views them. And so in my role, I couldn't figure out what Bill knew that I didn't know that would make him qualified to be CEO, but not me. I couldn't see the deficiency, but my board could see it. And the board's job is to be sure that the CEO is the right person. So they were doing their job, and I had recruited them to do that job. So I wasn't seeing something that the board saw. And that Bill, uh, and by the way, that judgment was vindicated. Bill did fabulously in that job. What did they see? What deficiency did they see that you didn't see? I think it's a temperament thing. So Bill is... Uh, is an airtight, to-do kind of person, does things, writes things down, does them very strong. He is also a big delegator, mm. back to a fault. 
we, the rest of us used to joke, we would have these meetings and everyone would end up with action items except Bill. <laughs> and so then it became our objective to get something on his to-do list. And probably, by the way, if you got something on his to-do list, it got done. So that was his temperament, sort of a, a disciplined, more so than me. And uh, yeah, the, the first operations meeting, the next week, every Monday we had an ops meeting where the team, and I had run that meeting for two or three years. And this was the first time Bill was going to run the meeting. And uh, he had a yellow pad and a pen or pencil, I forget which. And he was writing as we had the meeting. So I got curious because this is part of, I got to figure out what this guy knows that I don't know. So I got up and walked around behind him which if you're chairman of the board and founder of the company and you own most of it, you're allowed to do that. Right. But otherwise, I would not do that. And I went behind him and I looked at what he was writing on his pad. And he, had, he was doodling. And what he had written a hundred <laughs> times was DNT. Okay. So after the meeting, I took him aside and said, Bill, I, you know, I'm curious, what does DNT mean? And he said, and this was a big learning, uh, Bob, I... Fine. I talk too much. And uh, the way I keep myself from talking is I write, do not talk. Wow. Now, everyone thinks that I'm writing down what they're saying, which means what they're saying is important. So that's why I write anything. But the thing I most need to know is to be reminded to keep my mouth shut because these people are, you know, be responsible for running the company. So that was a big learning. That's sort of the beginning of um, uh, one of my secret weapons, something that I'm very, very good at. And it, I sort of learned it a lot that day, and it's listening. And I think it's the secret to most success is just listening. And Bill taught me that. He was listening to what those people were saying. He wasn't planning his little speech. Right. You know how you sit there and you plan your speech sure. while this other idiot is talking. And then they're done. You forget <laughs> what they said and then you just say what you were planning to say. And right. a real character defect. DNT. DNT. Do not talk. So then I, so I got used to this idea of being the... Actually, that's why I didn't storm out the door. If they had just made Bill CEO, period... I might have stormed out the door, but they gave me a job. They said, well, now we want you to be head of sales and marketing. So that was the, I think that's what saved me from doing something stupid. And leaving also an approach that you used a lot later in offering people alternatives. Say, we, you can either leave the company or take this other role in which we think you're going to prosper. Right. Um, anyway, so those are two, we've now touched on two um, uh, negative events, but there are many yeah. Many others. No, those. I, that's that's a great. That's a really fantastic example. Uh, with a lot of learning, consequently, or subsequent to that. Well, having given you two low points yeah. in my life, of which there are many others, let me give you a high point. All right. In uh, a couple of decades ago, I was informed that I was going to be given the National Medal of Technology. And uh, my parents were still alive. And uh, I brought them with me to the White House. They went into the White House, which is really fantastic. And I got this medal, George Bush, and I put it around my mother's neck. And I, have a, I have this picture 
of my dad. And, and these are very simple people. They went to college. I don't think they liked George Bush. I don't know. But it was the culmination of the American dream. That's the phrase I use, culmination of the American dream. Because these, these folks had uh, their whole life wanted their kid to go to college and make something of himself. And here I was getting the... So I consider this my mom's medal of uh, technology that she... So that was a big high point. That's a big high point. So by the way, on the, you may know there is some hostility between scientists and engineers. Yeah. It's a false dichotomy, really. Mm-hmm. And this was a... Uh, I'm, a metal, I'm a member of the National Academy of Engineering, not the National Academy of Sciences that sets up this episode. In the bus... Going to the culmination of the American dream, I'm sitting next to a man who's about to receive the National Academy of Science, uh, the National Medal of Science. And I start saying to him, this is so cool, and the party last night was great, and now we're going to see the White House, and my parents are there, and everything. Isn't that great? And this guy says to me, it is pretty nice, but it's not as good as Stockholm. (laughs) (laughs) oh my god what a comment uh i I, I didn't punch him out yeah (laughs) i mean now just for people who might not make the association that's a nobel prize reference that's right that's where you get that he so he was telling me that he had received the nobel prize (laughs) and and that was sort of a Uh, notch above the prizes we were getting that day what a that's called raining on somebody's That's a parade. Dick response. Just to, there's a Long Island coming out. Wow, it's a hell of a bus ride. Uh, what a wonderful, what a wonderful day that must have been. How did your, how did your parents respond? Well, they walked around like this, you know, looking at everything, the portraits on the walls, and the uh, the military guys. There's a lot of uh, beautiful uniformed military people there. My parents were. Um, very impressed and befriended them, so they they hung out with the military. I don't. My father um, lost an eye when he was a kid, so he wasn't able to serve with his three brothers in the Pacific during the World War II. Yeah, both my mother and father had a tragedy in their life that prevented them from going to college, which I think is why they had a special reason that I should go to college. And and their attitude to the military very supportive and positive to the military because three of their, my father's brothers had served in World War II, so they were they were so that was part of their reaction was to look at these beautiful military. You know, the White House picks these beautiful specimens of military, you know, fit and handsome and or beautiful or whatever the right adjective. Is. And uh, so they hung around them. I remember that vividly. And the military, they're short. My mother is five two. My father is was five nine. So they're little tiny people. And uh, they were being escorted around by these huge Marines uh, from the various rooms of the White House. I remember that. Anyway, it was uh, a culmination of the American dream. Uh, well, let's 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 tie up here. Uh, I would say I'll ask you two last questions. One is any parting thoughts, suggestions, asks of the audience to people listening to this and watching this. Uh, Anything at all could be a question, a suggestion, a request, and then where people can find you online, say hello, learn what you're up to, 
and so on. So, so any any parting thoughts or uh, comments, questions, asks of any type? Well, I'm a big believer in the American dream, and I I think we need to keep it alive, and that's uh, uh, and it's at issue every day, just to whether the this the dream of freedom and and uh, achievement, capitalism, Ayn Rand, you know, that whole thing. Uh, I believe in it, and I think uh, people um, should respect it and pursue it. So starting companies is sort of the ultimate version of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the plumbing of, of free enterprise, is starting companies to solve human problems. And so that's why I spend my time helping people start companies. And that last modifier on the starting companies, too, is important. Right, to solve human problems or to solve problems. That's, I, I think that's a really, it's a really critical piece to underscore. Uh, well, I think it gets underscored too much. You do? Yes. All right. Say, please say more. There's a kind of snobbery that, or uh, virtue signaling okay. that so, goes on. Right. The explicit so proclamation. I'm, so what's booming uh, in my field, which is the my current field, which is the uh, care and feeding of the startup ecosystem in Texas or in the U.S. or, what, or Austin, whichever. Uh, there are these things called impact or social entrepreneurship. And I hasten to explain that, oh, that must mean what I do is anti-social entrepreneurship. And you, you guys solve human problems, whereas what do we do? We do it what do we do that for? We're doing it. We're money grubbing for profit people. Right. Yeah. So I don't respond well to that insult. I don't think profit is a four letter word. I'm right about that too. No, I, well, I don't mean to apply that either. I just think that there are companies, uh, let's just say you could never make an announcement or wear it as a badge of honor, as words on your sleeve or anything like that. The, the only point I was trying to make is that I don't think for profit is at all a four letter word. And I think it's often absolutely, if not always, essential to create something that is self-sustaining, that can scale and serve the greatest number of people or have the greatest impact, but that uh, a capable engineer or entrepreneur, certainly doesn't have to be an engineer who wants to build a company, can choose many forms that company can can take, the product or service that can produce uh, and... Uh, so at the beginning of your company, you can declare its motto is "Do no evil." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a tricky one. That's a tricky one. Uh, I, you know, yeah. it's a little odd. It's yeah. almost like protesting too much. That, yeah. you know, we're going to do no evil. Whatever we is is not evil. Um, but suffice to say, uh, the American dream, the importance of that, and the part of the fuel for that, at least in, in the sense of the free enterprise that supports much of it being building companies. That's an important one. Well, I like making a list of companies, you know, um, General Motors, Google, Apple, Procter & Gamble. I put it on this big screen and I ask my students, which ones are the startups? And if they pick the obvious ones, Microsoft, Apple, they, they can remember them being startups. They say, well, General Electric was a startup. Edison founded that company to solve a human problem years ago. It's just an old startup. IBM right. is a hundred-year-old startup. They're all startups, and that's yeah. how 
the free enterprise system works. You create companies to solve problems. You find a need and you fill it. And that's, uh, so I claim, so there's a billion, there are billions of people who use my invention to have access to the internet. I think that's a good thing. I think connecting people together stimulates prosperity and democracy and all those good things. But I did it in a for-profit, venture-backed, Silicon Valley, went public kind of way. And I, so it annoys me a little when the virtual signaling comes from the, the social entrepreneurs who, who claim that they're the ones solving human problems and not all the other companies who feed everybody and fly them around the world and build their houses. That doesn't count. Yeah. And I, so excuse me for being a little annoyed at that. <laughs> you can be annoyed. <laughs> perfectly, perfectly uh, valid response, I think, to many things. Uh, well, if, for, for those people listening and watching who would love to learn more about what you're up to and your thinking and to perhaps say hello on the, on the web, where are good places to find you? So I tweet a lot. Mm-hmm. And I'm at sign Bob Metcalf mm-hmm. with an E. Mm-hmm. The E is all important. <laughs> and I, I probably tweet 10 or 20 times a day. And I can control my number of followers. I figured this out. When I want it to go up, I, I uh, tweet about startups. Mm-hmm. And when I want it to go down, I tweet about politics. <laughs> it's, I, so I, I, got, I have uh, 22,000 followers. And I'm keeping, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I'm uh, curating my echo chamber. Mm-hmm. So I block people every day. Anyone annoys me a little bit, I just block them. And, it, and so I'm <laughs> staying there at around 22,000 now. But if I want it to go up, I know how to do that. You know? <laughs> virtue signal, how you do it is virtue signaling. You know, so well, you may, you may have uh, a herd to call after this podcast. I'm sure many people will visit. Uh, well, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time today. This was really fun for me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. And uh, for everybody who is listening, for everybody who is watching, everything we talked about, uh, the books, uh, the organizations, and much more will be in the show notes, as well as Bob's Twitter account, way up at the top. So if you'd like to dig further into these resources, you can just go to tim.blog forward slash podcast to find the links and show notes on this episode as well as every other. And until next time, thank you for listening and thank you for watching. Thanks, Bob. Thanks. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? And would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Peloton. And I'd heard about Peloton over and over again, but I ended up getting 
a Peloton bike in the whole system after I saw my buddy Kevin Rose. I've known him forever, some of you know, and he showed up at my gate at my house a while back and he looked fantastic. And uh, I asked him, I said, dude, you look great. What the hell have you been up to? Because he's always doing a weird diet or another, but it only lasts like a week or two. So he always regresses to the mean after like 75 beers. And he said, I've been doing Peloton five days a week. Now that caught my attention because Kevin does nothing five days a week. And you know I love you, Kevin. But it really piqued my curiosity. Ended up getting a system, and it's become an integral part of my week. I love it, and I really didn't expect to love it at all because I find cycling really boring usually. But Peloton is an indoor cycling bike that brings live studio classes right into your home. You don't have to worry about fitting classes in your schedule or making it to a studio with some type of commute, etc. New classes are added every day, and this includes options led by elite New York City instructors in your own living room. You can even live stream studio classes taught by the world's best instructors or find your own favorite class on demand. And in fact, Kevin and I rarely do live classes, and you can compete with your friends, which is also fun. Kevin, I'm coming after you. But we usually just use classes on demand. I really like Matt Wilpers and his high-intensity training sessions that are shorter, like 20 minutes. And I think Kevin's favorite is Alex, and everyone seems to have their favorite instructor, or you can select by music, duration, and so on. Each Peloton bike includes a 22-inch HD touchscreen, performance tracking metrics. I think that, along with the real-time leaderboard, are the main reasons that this caught my attention when cycling never had caught my attention before. It's really pretty stunning what they've done with the user interface to keep your attention. The belt drive is quiet and it's smaller than you would expect. So it can fit in a living room or an office. I actually have it in a large closet, believe it or not. And it fits with no problem. So Peloton is offering all of you guys, listeners of the Tim Ferriss Show, a special offer. And it is actually special. Visit One Peloton, that's O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N, OnePeloton.com, and enter the code TIM, all caps, T-I-M, at checkout to receive $100 off accessories with your Peloton bike purchase. Now, you might say, meh, accessories? Wait, I don't need fancy towels or whatever other supplemental bits and pieces. No, the shoes you need. You need the clip-in shoes, and those are in the accessory category. So this $100 off is a very legit $100 off. So if you want to get in your workouts, if you want a convenient and really entertaining way to do high-intensity interval training or anything else, or you just want to get a fantastic gift for someone, check out Peloton. OnePeloton.com and enter the code TIM. Again, that's O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com and enter the code TIM at checkout to receive $100 off any accessories, including the shoes that you will want to get. Check it out. OnePeloton.com, code TIM. This episode is brought to you by WeWork. I love WeWork. I haven't had an office in many, 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 many years since 2000 or so when I had my last real job, I suppose, in quotation marks. But when I moved from San Francisco to Austin not long ago, I decided, you know what? I'm tired of working at home. I'm tired of working at coffee shops. So one of the very first things I did was to get a space at WeWork. I could not be happier with this change in my life. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where companies and people grow together. The idea is really simple. 
You focus on your business and WeWork takes care of all the rest, including front desk service, utilities, refreshments, and more. I also often have that shipped from Amazon and elsewhere to my office at WeWork. Here in Austin, I've been completely blown away by the members-only events, special offers, and perhaps the best cold brew coffee on tap that I've ever had. It's been amazing. It's been a real, real change in my life and improved my quality of life. And there are also dog-friendly WeWork locations all over the place. How fun is that? WeWork caters to everyone from entrepreneurs and freelancers to startups and even large enterprises, including GE, Salesforce, Microsoft, MasterCard, Samsung, Spotify, Pinterest, and Red Bull, among many others. In fact, more than 10% of Fortune 500 companies currently use WeWork, and it's a rapidly growing group. In other words, it's not just solopreneurs and ground-level startups that use WeWork, but everything from that to the big companies who are seeing very huge benefits as well. WeWork believes that creating spaces where people can connect and create meaning together, right? After all, if you are someone who has built a business modeled on the principles of the four-hour work week or elsewhere, it can be a lonely road sometimes. Even though you're digitally connected, it can feel very, very isolating. So in these spaces, you can connect with real humans and uh, all the while, use space more efficiently and cost-effectively, which makes you and your business better equipped to face the challenges of today and tomorrow. WeWork now has more than 200 locations, so you can find great spots all over the world. So head over to we.co forward slash Tim. That's we.co, C-O. We.co forward slash Tim to become a part of the global WeWork community. At the very least, I encourage you to check out pictures of some of the locations around the world. There are some incredible spots. So check it out, we.co forward slash Tim. 